With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe and others. I'm Christopher and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 49. Unfortunate Madness. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Before we begin today, I'd like to thank my Patreon House of Lords, which has been joined by Zach Viscount Eltringham. Like all other patrons, he can now listen to this and every other episode ad-free. Go to patreon.com slash paxbritannica to find out more. Also, if you're listening to this episode on release, the Intelligent Speech Conference is this coming Saturday, the 25th of June, 2022, at 3pm London time, or 10am Eastern Time. There's a huge range of great shows taking part. The hosts behind the British History Podcast, The History of the Second World War, Totalis Rankium, Rex Factor, Pontifacts, Wonders of the World, The Things That Made England, The Siècle, The Hellenistic Age Podcast, The French History Podcast, and The History of Persia Podcast, among many, many more taking part. Go to intelligentspeechconference.com or follow the link in today's episode to find out more. Last week, we saw how the Marquess of Ormond attempted to forge a lasting peace treaty with the Irish Confederacy, and how the negotiations broke down over the question of religion. How much power would the Catholic Church have in post-war Ireland? Would they keep control of the churches in Confederate territory? Would they have to return them to Protestant control? Would they keep them? Could all this be sorted out in peacetime? On that last point, Ormond had been a firm no. Attempts by the Confederate negotiators to essentially ignore the problem, prioritising secular political concessions and leaving difficult questions for later, were stonewalled by the Lord Deputy. He insisted that any peace treaty explicitly state the role and influence that the Catholic Church would have in the future kingdom, and he wanted that role to be minimal. With the negotiations dragging out, and Charles I's position in the English Civil War going from bad to worse, the king decided to try a different strategy. Edward Somerset, 
was the first son of the fifth Earl of Worcester, who went by the title of Lord Herbert after his father inherited the earldom. Herbert had had a fairly unremarkable military career during the Civil War, despite being appointed as a commander, a lieutenant general, and being responsible for large parts of Wales and the Midlands at various points. The most notable events in his military career seem to have been getting three of his officers killed by peasants in the Forest of Dean, and letting a force of 2,000 men be captured by Sir William the Conqueror Waller outside Gloucester. But Herbert kept getting promoted, mostly because the king liked him. He'd also contributed a literal fortune to the king's war chest, about £250,000, which certainly helped, plus the king liked the Somersets as a family. Why are we talking about Lord Herbert? It's not because of his military credentials, but for two other reasons. Firstly, he was Catholic. Secondly, his wife was Margaret, daughter of the fourth Earl of Tomond. These made him ideal for what Charles had in mind, which was negotiating with the Confederacy agents who had arrived at Oxford in the spring of 1644. However, when the agents were dismissed and sent home, Herbert's mission was not over. Instead, Charles made him a deal. Travel to Ireland and forge a lasting peace with the Confederacy, and you will be rewarded. Rewarded how? Well, his son, Henry, would be married to Charles's daughter, Elizabeth. This was an incredible reward, and it only got better, because naturally a princess couldn't marry the grandson of a mere earl. Herbert would be made the Duke of Somerset. There hadn't been a Duke of Somerset since the Lord Protector Somerset lost his head in 1552. Promotion up several rungs of the peerage and marriage into the royal family was a really good offer, though naturally it was all just promises right now. For starters, Elizabeth was in no position to get married anytime soon. She was a prisoner of Parliament and nine years old. In the meantime, Herbert was made the Earl of Glamorgan, so from now on we're talking about Glamorgan. On the 12th of March 1645, Glamorgan received a warrant giving him full authority to negotiate a peace with the Confederacy on whatever terms they wanted. All hush-hush, obviously. This was political dynamite, not least for Ormond, who had only recently been told that he had full authority over the peace negotiations. The king insisted to Ormond that Glamorgan was absolutely subordinate to the Lord Deputy, and even threw some shade at the new earl, quote, His honesty or affection to my service will not deceive you, but I will not answer for his judgment, end quote. Glamorgan set sail on the 25th, but in an omen of what was to come, he was shipwrecked and so only made it to Ireland in late June. There is some debate in all of this. Glamorgan's new title, for example, wasn't official until January 1646, and whether Charles would have followed through on his deal in the event Glamorgan succeeded is unknown. What's also unclear is whether Charles ever expected, or even wanted, Glamorgan to succeed. Giving the Confederacy a free hand to decide the peace terms would be an existential threat to the Church of Ireland. Everything else we've seen of Charles suggests his deep commitment to Church of England Protestantism, and by extension, to the Church of Ireland. That's not even touching on the reaction this would have among his Irish Protestants, or his subjects in England and Scotland. So, what the hell is Charles up to? In his biography of Glamorgan, Stephen Roberts suggests that Charles was 
allowing the Glamorgan mission to proceed as a dimension in a complex royal game of diplomacy. Glamorgan set off for Kilkenny on the 6th of August, and within three weeks, the first Glamorgan Treaty was agreed on the 25th of August. Would you believe it, but essentially giving the other party everything they want makes negotiation really quick. And when I said this would be political dynamite, I wasn't exaggerating. All penal laws against Catholics were to be repealed, Catholics would be entirely beyond the jurisdiction of the Protestant Church and returned to the jurisdiction of Rome and the Pope. In effect, it solved many of the thorny clerical issues which were holding up the Ormond peace negotiations by surrendering the principle of a single state church. This is exactly what the Irish Catholic hierarchy wanted. Restoration and security of church property, and therefore the resources and infrastructure to operate in the kingdom, and freedom from the state church jurisdiction. In a sense, it was an Irish Treaty of Nantes. In return, 10,000 Catholic soldiers would be raised and placed under Glamorgan's command to fight anywhere in the Three Kingdoms. Glamorgan insisted that the treaty had to remain secret, to resolve the politically unacceptable problems in the shadows, and allowing Ormond's public treaty to answer for the secular issues. Secrecy was key. So we have this bizarre situation, where Ormond probably knew what Glamorgan was up to, but had to pretend he didn't. It's possible that Ormond had nothing but suspicions, based on how the king kept insisting to Ormond that he had his sovereign's full and exclusive support, and how Glamorgan kept his correspondence with the Lord Deputy nice and vague. But Oshukru makes the convincing argument that Ormond must have known something. The treaty was meant to be secret, but we see a sudden and dramatic shift in opinion within the General Assembly towards a peace with Ormond. This suggests that even if the treaty wasn't shown to the Assembly, they knew it existed, and they had a very good idea of what was in it, and so they were happy that it resolved their primary objections to an Ormond peace. And this is a lot of people to keep quiet, and many of them were in contact with Dublin and with Ormond. It also seems that Glamorgan and Ormond went out of their way to avoid putting any incriminating evidence onto paper, and the absence of details in their correspondence, Glamorgan not telling his supposed superior what he's agreeing to, and Ormond not insisting too hard that he spill the beans, is itself suspicious. At least once, Glamorgan wrote in a letter, that the information he was sending Ormond was too dangerous to put on paper, and instead the man carrying it would explain it all in person. After the Glamorgan Treaty was agreed, a key change in personnel took place within the Confederacy. This change was the supplanting of the chief papal representative in Ireland. Pier Francesco Scarampi had been an effective, though restrained, papal representative. His very presence gave the Confederation a clear spiritual rallying point. Clearly, the Vicar of Rome was on their side. But Scarampi led the Irish clergy through advice and persuasion, and, as happened over the First Glamorgan Treaty, he was overruled by native Irish concerns. His position, which was backed up by Rome, was that keeping these terms a secret was insulting to the papacy and to Catholicism, and that it would effectively divide the Confederacy's secular and clerical wings. If a public peace with Ormond satisfied their secular demands, 
but their clerical demands were kept secret, the king could effectively ignore the Glamorgan Treaty by denying its legitimacy. And if the secular confederates had been appeased, they might not join the bishops in demanding the Glamorgan terms were fulfilled. And perhaps Scarampi had realised Charles's intention behind the Glamorgan mission. But Scarampi's opposition to the treaty was muted. The Irish bishops who were deliberating over the terms agreed to them by a majority of one. Scarampi explained his position best when writing back to Rome, but when actually trying to convince the Irish bishops, he was much more passive. The bishops obviously asked his opinion. He was the representative of the Pope, and Scarampi gave his opinion. But first, he made clear that they were obviously eminently qualified to make their own decisions. They didn't need his opinion, but if they wanted it, he didn't like the Glamorgan Treaty. And anyway, he had not been given instructions to approve two separate treaties which divided secular and spiritual concerns, and so he couldn't approve the Glamorgan Treaty anyway. This kind of passive-aggressive approach didn't work, however, and the bishops ignored his advice. As Tyg O'Hanricane puts it, quote, Scarampi was a shy man who, as he grew older, became steadily more and more averse to wielding authority. His cautious demeanour was thus probably a factor in the willingness of the Irish bishops to ignore his advice. End quote. The one concession the bishops appear to have made was in forcing Glamorgan to accept the involvement of the Confederate Committee of Treaty, who signed the treaty alongside the bishops. Now the treaty was marginally more legitimate, though its secrecy was still a concern. The death of Urban VIII and the controversial election of his successor, Innocent X, had ramifications in Ireland. The papal election had been deeply contested between factions supported by the French and by the Spanish. And so, partly to emphasise his authority, Innocent dispatched a new support package for the beleaguered Catholics of Ireland. The newly appointed papal nuncio, the Archbishop of Fermo, Giovanni Battista Rinuccini with a very big bag of money. Scarampi would remain in Ireland for a few more years, against his wishes, it has to be said, but from this point on, Rinuccini would be the font of papal support. Rinuccini's journey to Ireland was also part of Innocent's campaign to establish himself. Since the French had opposed his election, the nuncio stopped in Paris for a few months. Cardinal Mazarin, who had taken Cardinal Richelieu's place as the paramount statesman of France after the latter had died, was leading the regency government of the future Sun King, Louis XIV. Mazarin had led the opposition to Innocent's election, but he could hardly reject the visit of a papal nuncio. Yet his four-month stay in Paris didn't really help, and Rinuccini moved on. He arrived in Limerick on the 12th of November 1645, and set about making his mark on Irish history. Rinuccini was not Scarampi. He was clever, competent, and a shrewd diplomat, completely at ease wielding the papal authority he had been granted. It also helped that he'd come with the financial support of the Pope. He was prepared to assert his influence over not just the Irish clergy, but the Confederacy as a whole. He split his financial support mostly between Thomas Preston, commander of Leinster, and Owen Roe O'Neill, commander in Ulster. Soon after he arrived, it was, quote, no sooner known that promotions passed at Rome by his recommendation, but all the water ran by his channel, all pulpits spoke his sense, and all the observance formerly paid to the orders of the council were transferred to his direction. End quote. 
This quote from the Confederate lawyer Richard Bellings makes Rinaccini sound like some kind of puppet master, who swept in with all the prestige of the papacy, bent the Catholic hierarchy to his will, and through this had an iron grip on secular Confederate politics. But while he was incredibly influential, O'Hanrakane makes the valid point that positioning himself at the centre of clerical politics was a double-edged sword. In the short term, it made him a power broker who everyone needed to listen to and obey if they wanted a promotion or favour in Rome. But in the longer term, there were only so many rewards and favours which the nuncio could distribute. Granting a diocese to one family might alienate two others who had wanted the same position. Also, Rinaccini was a foreigner, a very official interloper with the highest credentials, but an interloper nonetheless. He wasn't aware, or especially interested, in the local politics within each diocese. Rinaccini might champion the appointment of one candidate over another based on their religious position or their political value, over one who had prior connections and who might have been more effective and less of an imposition. Essentially, Rinaccini would increasingly wear out his welcome, but not before having a powerful influence over Irish affairs. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show, historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. When Rinaccini met Glamorgan, he was not impressed by the previous treaty, and he demanded further concessions, which the Earl agreed. Charles would never appoint a Protestant Lord Deputy. Catholic bishops were allowed their seats back in Parliament, and an explicitly Catholic university was to be established. In return, Glamorgan was promised 3,000 men for him to lead immediately, with the stated goal of relieving the Siege of Chester. But Rinaccini still didn't like this second Glamorgan Treaty, and he arranged for six bishops and two archbishops to sign a document which rejected any peace which separated religious and secular conditions. This is one of the stark contrasts between Scarampi and Rinaccini, because many of these bishops now rejecting the Glamorgan Treaty had accepted it just a few months before. O'Hanrakane points out that this was before 
Glamorgan's credibility was mortally wounded, and so he considers the nuncio's influence as the key element to this reversal. Now, I just mentioned that Glamorgan's credibility would be wounded. Well, the political dynamite that was the secret treaty duly exploded in everyone's face once the secret treaty stopped being so secret. In October 1645, the Catholic Archbishop of Tume was killed in a skirmish between his men and a force of Covenanters, and in his baggage was a copy of the First Glamorgan Treaty. The Scots read it, were horrified, and sent it on to Dublin, Edinburgh, and London. The news reached Dublin shortly after the Earl of Glamorgan. He'd rushed to the capital after concluding the new agreement with Rinuccini, and sought Ormond's permission to take command of the 3,000 men he'd now been promised. Instead, he was brought before the Lord Deputy and accused of treason by Lord Digby, clapped in irons, and imprisoned in Dublin Castle. The Lord Deputy made a great show of not knowing about Glamorgan's negotiations and feeling betrayed, and maybe that's true? It's possible that Ormond had trusted Charles's word, and now was furious that he'd been lied to and made to look like either a traitor to his faith or a fool. Lord Digby reported to the English Privy Council. Digby describes how Ormond had almost settled a peace with the Confederates, which is a bit of a fudging of the truth, and opened up a new font of manpower for the king in England, when, quote, the unfortunate madness, for I can give it no other name, of my Lord of Glamorgan, and the necessary proceeding thereupon, cast all things back into a posture as uncertain and more dangerous than ever, end quote. When the English Parliament got a hold of the treaty, they too were horrified and published it far and wide, yet again it seemed that the king was willing to sacrifice Protestantism in Ireland, and maybe even his two other kingdoms. So naturally, Charles made a very public disavowal of the treaty on the 29th of January. He also wrote to Glamorgan and rebuked him for not listening to Ormond, which must have been something of a slap in the face. The Lord Deputy left Glamorgan to stew for about a month, and then charged him a £40,000 bail, paid for by, among others, Clan Rickard and Antrim, and Glamorgan was free. But his reputation was in tatters. And when the news arrived that Charles had publicly disavowed Glamorgan and his treaty, his time in the spotlight came to an end. The armies raised by the Confederates and promised to Glamorgan were diverted elsewhere. He was returned to the negotiating team, but his primary purpose, to offer concessions which Ormond could or would not, was impossible now. He was tainted with a charge of treason, which had not been formally revoked, and the king had publicly denounced him and his efforts. Why would Rinuccini, or any Irish bishop, believe that Glamorgan could satisfy any promises he made? He was about as useful as a chocolate teapot. The earl would remain in Ireland for the next few years, occasionally commanding armies, but he could well and truly forget any royal marriage for his son. But Rinuccini didn't wait for Glamorgan to be released. When the news broke that he had been arrested and charged with treason, the Confederate Supreme Council was on Christmas break, and the provincial armies were scattered in their winter quarters. The nuncio, who had never supported Glamorgan's treaty, even with the December concessions, struck. He convened a meeting of those members of the Supreme Council who were still in Kilkenny, and strongly urged them to order a march on Dublin itself. He might have succeeded if Viscount Muskery hadn't managed to attend. He urged caution, and insisted that this was a question that the General Assembly needed to discuss. And just like that, the nuncio's moment was gone. 
Rinuccini believed that Muscari was only calling for a general assembly as a delaying tactic, which was completely correct. Once the crisis was averted with the release of Glamorgan and the return of the rest of the peace faction leaders, Muscari confessed that he'd prefer to cancel the summons for a general assembly. The negotiators went back to work, and a peace treaty with Ormond, despite all of this, seemed to be in its final stages. And then, Rinuccini received divine intervention. Another secret treaty arrived, because of course, this peace process needed more secret treaties. This treaty had been concluded between none other than Pope Innocent X and a representative of Queen Henrietta Maria, and the terms arrived in February. In return for 100,000 crowns of papal money, the royalists would restore the Catholic hierarchy in Ireland, restore church property to Catholics, allow free and public exercise of religion to Catholics, annul all penal laws since Henry VIII's Reformation, concede the independence of the Irish Parliament from the English, appoint Catholics to the principal offices and military strongholds in Ireland, unite their forces with the Confederacy against the Covenanters and the English Parliamentarians, with the Confederates dispatching 12,000 troops to England immediately. Wow. 100,000 crowns is a bargain for all of that. Then again, Charles's position in England was collapsing. More on that next time when we return across the Irish Sea. The Royalists were desperate. Unfortunately for Rinuccini, the treaty he received was encoded and unverified. An original copy, complete with verification of its authenticity, was on the way, but until it arrived, the Supreme Council was unwilling to act on the Roman treaty. Instead, a compromise was reached. The truce with Ormond would be extended until the 1st of May, and troops would be sent to relieve Chester, the last major English port in royalist hands. Again, the king's position was looking very bad. If the Roman treaty arrived in full by the 1st of May, Glamorgan's treaty would be withdrawn. If it did not, Glamorgan's treaty would be accepted. In the meantime, negotiations with Ormond on the political terms would continue, but neither treaty would be published without the other. In March, those negotiations restarted, and on the 28th of March, 1646, the first Ormond peace was signed by both the Royalist and Confederate negotiators. It was kept in the safekeeping of Clan Rickard until it could be published. Three things to keep in mind here. First, the Confederates had been desperate to conclude this peace before Ormond's authority to negotiate expired on the 1st of April, and so moderated their demands to make this more likely. Secondly, Ormond and the Committee of Treaty agreed to postpone publication until the promised Confederate forces arrived in England and relieved Chester. And thirdly, no one told Rinuccini or the Confederate military commanders that the treaty had been signed. As Oshukru puts it, quote, subterfuge and deceit characterised the following four months until the publication of the treaty, as each faction tried to outmanoeuvre the other, end quote. With the king's position looking worse by the day, the Confederacy was reluctant to send any forces across the sea just to be defeated, killed, or taken prisoner and then killed. A 1644 parliamentary ordinance demanded the summary execution of any Irishman or any Catholic from Ireland fighting in England. Instead, early in April, the Supreme Council decided to use the soldiers previously earmarked for England to fight in Munster against parliamentary forces. Even with the peace signed, negotiations continued. Ormond was informed that if he published this secular peace, 
the Confederacy would go right ahead and proclaim the Glamorgan Peace alongside it. Ormond point-blank refused to accept the Glamorgan Treaty, and he warned the Confederate Council that if they proclaimed it, he would denounce it. The king had already done so, after all. But if the secular peace was published without a corresponding religious peace, the Roman treaty still hadn't arrived, the Confederate clerical faction would be outraged, and Confederate unity would shatter. It was a real quagmire, and the Confederate leadership gathered in Limerick to work out what to do. And when they did so, the fateful news arrived. Charles I, King of England, Ireland and Scotland, had surrendered to the Scottish army at Newark. The Royalists had lost the English Civil War. What the hell were the Confederacy and the Irish Royalists going to do now? Thank you to my House of Lords, including but not limited to the King's favourite Mike Sanders, Bill Winkis, Duke of Bristol, Alan Goldstein, the Marquess of Southampton, and James Fee, Earl of Derby. Remember that every patron, regardless of rank, receives an RSS feed, which you can put in any podcast app to listen to the podcast ad-free. Thank you to everyone who has supported me on Patreon, or donated through PayPal, left a review, or told a friend about the podcast. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music used in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hello. My name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.